from Los Angeles, California, this is Berncast, and I'm the bomb. Welcome to Burncast. I'm the bomb, the host. Before we begin today's show, I just want to take a moment to talk about a few things regarding this podcast and Burning Man. As of the taping and uploading of today's episode, there are only 27 days left until the next burn. I will attempt to produce one more episode before I leave for the playa, but as you know, time is precious right now. I ask that if you've been listening to the show to please make a small contribution to the Burncast production budget to help enable me record podcasts at Burning Man. I'm in need of one gigabyte mini discs and some better microphones. Or if you have recording expertise, I would love your assistance at the event. For more information, please go to our website, www.burncast.net, and click on Support. In addition to Burncast, I'm also producing Ouija Says, an art project that will be mapped in the who, what, when, where, and located somewhere between the 4 o'clock radius and the man. At the time of this recording, we are still trying to raise funds for this project through the sale of furry playalicious playwear and hoops at the Ouija Says Freak Boutique, which can be found on the web at www.ouijasays.com. That's www.ouijasays.com. O-U-I-J-A-S-A-Y-S dot com. I want to thank my audience in advance for the overwhelming success of Burncast and to invite you to visit me and share your comments about the show at my camp, Camp Sunscreen, which will be located at 3 o'clock in Esplanade. Burncast is going to the playa for 2006, and we have a few things planned. First is Tutu Tuesday, taking place on August 29th, which is a Tuesday, in which we ask all citizens of Black Rock City to don a tutu and drink a toast in solidarity for... Community. On Wednesday, August 30th, we will be recording a podcast at the Spoken Word Stage in Center Camp from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., and we invite all our listeners to come and join us. And again, drink a toast to... Community. Then, on Friday, September 1st, 2006, from 7 to 10 p.m., we will be holding a Burncast meet-and-greet cocktail party in which guests of our show and listeners can come together and drink a toast to... Yeah, you guessed it. The party will take place at Gnome Camp, located at 4.30 in Destiny within New Amsterdam Village. Okay, now let's get to this episode. In today's episode, we speak to Treops Trafid about a collaborative art project produced by the Good Vibe Posse, of which I'm involved with, entitled The Curiosity Cabinet of the Collective Unconscious. Treops produced a series of recordings of people's dreams for this project, but before we get into the recordings, uh, we talk a little bit about the process of making this project. All right, you guys, I look forward to seeing you on the playa, and until then, no sleeps till Black Rock City. I'll see you there. Bye. My name is Treab Strayfid. I am an artist living and working in Los Angeles. My uh, project, called the uh, Curiosity Cabinet of the Collective Unconscious, which is a group project, that was organized by the uh, Good Vibes Posse, which is uh, my Burning Man camp, and in particular initiated by Marta Bartholomew, who was the originator of the entire idea. Yay, Marta. We miss you, Marta. <laughs> what is a curiosity cabinet? Well, a curiosity cabinet, I guess, started out, I guess, in the 15th or 16th centuries. It was a place to 
organize and display objects from all over the world, really, the Far East in particular. This is sort of the precursor of the museum. Uh, rich people would, uh, you know, find interesting objects that were imported from all over the world that would come in off the ships, and they would put it in a cabinet in their uh, house and invite people over and, and view it. And this Curiosity Cabinet originally debuted, actually, it, it debuted in Los Angeles last year at the Hive, right? Yeah, the Hive Gallery is a uh, sort of, it's not quite a collective, but it's a gallery and studio space downtown on 7th and Spring Street. And every month there's a uh, group show there. And I think it was August of last year, we displayed the uh, Curiosity Cabinet for the first time uh, there, fully installed, and uh, went really well. People really liked it. And then we took it to Burning Man. And also, right. we, we got a grant for that, right? Yeah, Marta initiated all that and took care of all that. And she uh, got a grant from Burning Man. And we were all very surprised. We were working on another project for uh, Burning Man at the time. and. I think we're all we were all really happy that we just sort of when we got this grant we just sort of all focused on the curiosity cabinet which was a much better idea than uh, the other thing we were going for. Cool. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the curiosity cabinet. How many artists were involved with this project? It's 25 artists. Sort of the structure of it is a uh, library card file that has uh, 30 drawers in it and uh, the theme for Burning Man last year was the psyche, the unconscious, I don't remember exactly what it was, mm -hmm. but so the curiosity cabinet of the collective unconscious was sort of a collection of sort of little pieces of the unconscious put in these little drawers and it sort of manifested itself like a sculpture. We gave a drawer to many different artists to construct something in and I think there was about 25 artists. There was a couple of artists that did uh, two drawers. I did two drawers. We just eventually got the pieces back and it turned out amazingly well and people loved it. I mean, it was so so much fun to just go up to it and pull the drawers mm -hmm. out and see what was inside. Uh, one of my drawers was uh, a audio-based sculpture. There was a MP3 player inside which had recorded on it many people discussing and describing their dreams that they've mm -hmm. had. Mm -hmm. And inside the drawer you would open it and take the headphones out and put the headphones on and listen to people describing their dreams and it was uh, really effective. I, I, I really had a lot of fun uh, recording people's dreams. How many dreams did you record? Whew, must have been about 60. I think I had over two hours of uh, material, probably about two and a quarter hours worth of material. Yeah, I did, I think I talked about four dreams and I had quite a I few. I think you had eight. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They're all short, so. <laughs> short and intense. Yeah, they um. were intense. They were good. <laughs> so that, the, sort of the dream, the dream project was a project within a project. I got interested in uh, recording people's dreams just because a lot of my work my, my artwork is really about the unconscious, mm -hmm. and I n have read up on the unconscious, and uh, I go to a therapist who does dream uh, analysis, so oh. I'm very interested in all that sort of thing. I did a drawer as well for the Curiosity Cabinet, and by the end of the week, it was thrashed. How did your project survive a whole um, week of burning on? How did anybody's project survive at the whole weekend? We knew that people would fuck with it, but we didn't think they'd fuck with it that much. What do you mean, that much? Well, I mean, I think people may have been confused that the cabinet was um, 
a gifting sculpture so that you would the idea was you open the drawers and see the pretty sculpture in there and then you try to take it out so which is <laughs> what happened years didn't last a week it lasted a, probably a couple days well it was um it's like i went in there the first day and there's something missing from it i think the timer uh the bomb did a sculpture of a bomb yeah which is pretty cool and uh, the first day the timer was gone the second day the wiring was gone the third day <laughs> there was a couple of sticks of dynamite left and then that was it <laughs> right but my uh, project I had we had to service the sculpture every day. Oh, really? To sort of take stuff out of it. People were leaving stuff in there, and people were climbing on top of it, and it was it was uh, a little disappointing. But I mean, in hindsight, we really should have expected that uh, there was it was going to be uh, it was going to be well loved, I guess to say. But because it, it, was it did installed, survive. It was installed in a high traffic area. It was installed yeah. in the funhouse, right? Yeah, the funhouse underneath the man, and many probably thousands of people uh, went through that room. So, uh, but the good thing is people really enjoyed it, and it did survive the week. We had to service it. Every day we'd go there and change batteries. There was a few drawers that had uh, needed electricity, had lights in it, or like mine. There was only one that had a tape recorder, but um, I need to change the battery every day. So uh, it did go well. People really liked it a lot and had a lot of fun, and it got trashed a little bit, but that's the way it goes. It's going to happen at Burning Man, so... Yeah. So, let it go. so in in total, it was it really was a complete success. Just next time we do something, we have to make it a little hardier. A little hardier, yeah. Is it going to come back to Burning Man this year? Yes, uh, Randy Kirk, one of the uh, GVPers, is going to bring the Curiosity Cabinet to the Gnome Camp. I'm not sure exactly where that is located, but it's uh, at 4:30 in New Amsterdam Village. There you go. So, if you miss it last year. Uh, come on and see it this year. Great. Now let's let's focus a little bit more on your particular projects. You collected over two hours worth of dreams. Any stories or anything significant about gathering these dreams you can share with us? Well, like I said, I mean, I've been very interested in it. My art is about the unconscious, so I like to explore my own unconscious, and I found it very curious and interesting to do it for other people as well. The dreams that I recorded, some were very mundane, some were fanciful, and some were violent, and there's all sorts of different types of dreams in there. And then, you know, with the unconscious, there is some constants, there is, you know, certain things that mean sort of the same thing to everybody, which I found uh, interesting. There was a lot of dreams that were similar, found that interesting. Like what? Well, there was somebody who had a dream that was almost exactly like the dream that I had. There was a, I was um, walking on a beach, something like that, and you know, walking with somebody, and uh, it was this long, narrow sort of peninsula almost, and this gigantic tidal wave started coming at me and washed over me, but I was, I was in a little house, and, it, and I weathered it, I survived. So talked to a couple other people who have had the exact same dream, in my dream, the well, I think in all dreams, water is significant of the and symbolic of the unconscious itself. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, when you go beneath the, beneath the surface of the water, that's sort of the unconscious. That's sort of where you're not there. Are, you know, there are monsters down there. There's all sorts of interesting things there be down dragons. there. Dragons. There's plenty of stuff down there. I guess to interpret my dream in particular, the sort of like this. The unconscious was a, a threat to me, but it washed over me, and I was okay. I was okay with whatever was, was in the unconscious, so 
So you brought us a, a tape we're going to listen to. Um, I don't know. I brought a sort of a greatest hits disc, which has about 20 dreams on it, which are less than two minutes. Oh, okay. So you can play however much of that you'd like to play. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the whole show on. Oh, good, good, good. listen to that. But if people want to hear the whole thing, can you... Can people hear it? Is there a way people can hear it? You know, I haven't done that. I thought about uh, uh, putting Dreams online for people to download and listen to, but uh, I hadn't done that yet, but I think that's a good idea. And now that you're going to be doing the Burncast, maybe I'll make that available on the site. We made a little site for the Curiosity Cabinet, which is on my personal site. Um, What's your personal site? It's uh, treops.com, which is T-R-E-I-O-P-S. Dot com forward slash bm2005 and I will put dreams up there for people to download at least a few because they are really interesting and it's it's kind of hard to describe them without listening to them people really really were into the project as well people really enjoyed giving their dreams and explaining about it people are curious about their dreams and they're unconscious because it's so difficult mm -hmm. to interpret them and the reason it's so difficult to interpret dreams is because you know the unconscious is a, is a, speaks in a language that uh, the uh, conscious mind doesn't speak in. They don't. It can be at, at odds sometimes. And uh, you know, when we uh, grow up, we're conditioned to think a certain way, and uh, all that conditioning oftentimes takes us away from our intuition and our uh, uh, you know our intuitive side. And the unconscious is always speaking in that language, mm -hmm. so that's why it's difficult to interpret dreams because it's pure, it's it's speaking in pure symbols, mm -hmm. and you have to interpret that. And when you're taught certain things, it takes you away from being able to interpret it. So uh, what we're about to hear now is some of the dreams from Treops Trafid's dream project. There's one thing though that we ha we haven't covered yet. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Burning Man community. Uh, <laughs> Yay! Thank you! <laughs> Drink! Drink! <laughs> Alright, thank you so much. Uh -huh. So I'm a father of a four-year-old boy, and he rarely figures in my dreams, actually, oddly enough. But this, but... This morning I had a very strange one where we were at some sort of street festival. And I was at some sort of street festival with my son. Um, something maybe like the Venice Carnival that was going on today. And there's lots of wonderful things going on at the street carnival. And I was there with my son, but for some reason, and I'm not sure why, I left my son standing on a street corner and went off to have dinner with some person I knew. And this, me and this person wandered off and had this wonderful meal and this little restaurant, well, you know, along this boulevard with all these people walking by and all kinds of parties going on and everything else. And I just left and walked down the road and had dinner. And about a, after the meal in my dream, I also all of a sudden realized that I had left my son down the road. So I got up, walked down the road, and there was my son standing on the street corner, my four-year-old son, not upset, not crying, not angry, just like, oh, hi, Daddy. And I went and I picked him up, and turns out he had to go to the bathroom. So we had to go and find a bathroom so we could go to the bathroom, and that's when I woke up. So it was very strange in that I sort of abandoned my son, but he wasn't bothered at all by it. It's kind of what the dream told me.
I am in a dim house. It is the huge old house in South Windsor where my grandparents lived. There all of the members of my family have gathered. The curtains are all drawn. There are bears outside. It is snowing. The bears want to get in and eat us. My Aunt Helen is worried. I and Steve, my brother, go down to the cellar to get some weapons, a shovel, a hoe. There are to my great joy a set of hatchets. We have a chance. My mom thinks we should stay in the cellar. I tell her no. I go to look out a window, pull back the curtains and look out. The bears are there. They see me looking and advance. When I was very young, I don't know, probably like five years old, I had a recurring dream in which there was a creature that looked like a full-size human mannequin, a pink mannequin, but with no arms, only legs. And it had a head, but it was sort of tucked inside its torso in some impossible way. And this creature, this leg, armless, legs-only thing would dance in the center of like a arena or a high school gym or something where it forced everyone to watch it. And so I was there and like everyone in my neighborhood was there. We all had to watch this thing um, that didn't really have a name, but like sounds associated with it. While it danced, it demanded that we all watch it dance. And if we didn't, it would become angry. And as a child, I didn't know what it would do. But we were all very afraid of what it might do if we decided we didn't want to watch it anymore. And I would dream about this thing many times. I would go to bed at night and wonder if I would dream about that thing. And I had one dream one night where we got away from it by telling it that we had to go to the store. And it believed us. And this was me and my friend Michelle Lowry from across the street and my dad and we got into dad's ford pinto and we drove away down a windy mountain road but as we were driving away we looked out the back window and this armless headless thing mannequin pink mannequin was chasing after us because it must have realized that we weren't going to the store we were trying to escape and that's when i woke up Okay, there was more to this dream, but this is the part that I remember. It was my job at this large complex to dump this trash. So there was a huge dump truck amount of stuff that I had to dump and guide into this huge dumpster. I didn't know what was in the trash and really wasn't paying attention until I realized that some of the curlier trash was connected and sticking together. I thought it kind of looked that, like that kid's game, Monkeys in a Barrel, and I realized that they actually were burnt monkeys. The place I realized must be a research facility, and those were incinerated research monkeys. Then one fell onto the edge of the dumpster. He was not as charred as the rest, but he had bubbled up skin and charred arms and legs. He just sat there with his eyes closed, and I thought he was dead like the rest of them. So I poked him a little, and he kind of gasped. And then I reached out and touched his hand, and it moved. He slowly opened his eyes and asked where he was. 
This was not as surprising to me as it would have been in real life, and I told him that he was in the dumpster after he had been burned and to be discarded. Oh, he said, as if he knew, and he knew the sadness of the situation. He jumped down, and the charred pieces started falling off of him. I was so happy that he was going to get through this, and said I was so sad that his fellow monkeys were gone. But I knew he was different. He didn't say it, but I knew somehow that he was immortal, that he had maybe been alive for something like 500 years. And he looked at me and smiled. So this is my dream. I'm, I'm being held by a group of people and I'm in a, a vertical position. I'm being held up by some people and they're carrying me and pushing, carrying me head first and they're pushing my head into this doorway and I'm terrified because on the other side of the doorway are a bunch of olives The family was on a road trip, and along the way, the mother died. The remainder of the family stopped at a motel to regroup. The owner of the motel was an eccentric inventor who had developed a method to change hair into other substances, paper, metal, water, etc. He showed the family a whole jungle gym that he had made out of hair. Unfortunately, although metal, as well as other things made from hair, was indistinguishable from the real thing when it was first made, it didn't last as long. The inventor showed the family how the jungle gym was unraveling into its component strands of hair and warned them not to play on the jungle gym because its bars would break from the pressure. But the inventor had just gotten in a new shipment of hair and had changed it into enough water to fill the swimming pool. The daughter of the family fell in love with the inventor and joined him for a moonlit swim in the pool. All was romantic until the water started to unravel. Strands of hair appeared in the pool, replacing the water with increasing speed, and it was hair that the daughter thought she recognized. Her brother suddenly ran to the pool, filled with horror, their mother had saved all her own hair from every haircut she'd had throughout her life, and now it had been stolen. The daughter tried to get away from the inventor, but couldn't. So entangled was she in her dead mother's hair. It was very much a Tori Amos dream of um, Cornflake Girl, uh, some song with the circles, and... Uh, I was in this, the snowdrifts, and there was um, this frozen over lake, which is really cool, and we do like little circles. And then it was time to go back to the big hotel where I supposedly lived. And um, we were milling through all these people, and it was very like 50s kind of furry coats, like polyester. And um, as I was stepping up on the porch, um, I saw this tall figure in this black robe and it reached out its hand and it was almost like a film thing where I saw the hand reach out and it was skeletal and then I was totally in disbelief and I looked up into the face of the black hood 
and there was nothing there. It was just space. And then I turned around and ran the other way. This was a dream that I had in, uh, in college um, during a Russian intensive language class. I don't know if that's relevant to anything, but it was a bunch of us like locked up in a house for a month trying to speak Russian to each other all the time. And, and a lot of kids seemed to be having like very strange, intense dreams during this period, probably just because we were under a lot of stress and I don't know. But anyway, um, in this dream, um, and it's a scary dream, this is probably the scariest dream I've ever had, I'm, I'm in a hospital and I'm on an examination table and um, there are these doctors looking down at me and I realize as they're looking at me that I'm dead and the way that I know this is that at the moment I die the um, doctors looking at me um, who are alive uh, suddenly take on the appearance of, of being dead themselves. Their, their faces turn to skulls and, and um, I just remember having this, this very vivid impression in the dream that, that you know, that that was what it was like to be dead. That, that, that death was this sort of alternate reality where, you know, people who live in death perceive our living existence as death, that they're these sort of mirror images of each other. And, and there was something really horrifying about it, you know, that, that, and, and especially since I was, you know, on this examination table and, and had these, these skeletons basically like poking and prodding me and sticking tubes in me. And, and because it felt like I was alive, but, but to them, I was dead and, and, to me, they were dead, and I was, but I was paralyzed. I was helpless. I couldn't move, and I couldn't do anything. And that was the dream. Not too long ago, I had a dream where I was a four-footed beast, and it was more than a dream because I could feel the pine needles under my feet, and I could smell the smells of all the creatures that had passed on the path before me. And when I went to leap over a log, I turned into a bird. And I soared up and up and up and up. And I could hear and feel the wind whistling in my wings. And I would look down and I saw the ocean down far below. And saw these fingers of rock jutting up strongly out of the earth with little scraggly pine trees. And I soared and soared and soared. The earliest dream that I had that I could still remember took place when I was about six years old. And it took place in a, uh, a mountain setting with a forest which led to a short uh, wooden fence. And beyond that wooden fence was a uh, broad meadow with a stream meandering through the middle of it. In the background was a symmetrical mountain with a snow-capped peak. I happened to lift that scene straight off of an oil painting that my grandmother painted when she was younger. 
I obviously thought it was a nice enough setting to appropriate for uh, one of my early dreams. Uh, the situation, however, was a little more uh, sinister. I was running through the forest with my cousin Margaret. She's about six months older than me, and we were running as fast as we could to escape uh, a stereotypical Indian with the loincloth and the feather in his hair and a bow and arrow. He was chasing us, and he meant business, and we were trying to escape. So we ran through the forest, and we arrived at the edge of the forest and where this fence was, and my cousin jumped over the fence first, and I was right behind her. As I climbed onto the top railing of the fence, the Indian shot his arrow, and it hit me right in the butt cheek. So I hopped to the other side of the fence, uh, now in the meadow part, uh, pulled the arrow out of my butt cheek, and threw it back at him as hard as I could, and then we took off running through the meadow. I have no idea how it ended. I believe we got away. And uh, aside from the obvious uh, Freudian implications, I really uh, would have to quote the old master here by saying, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I started performing three years ago, and I grew up performing in Los Angeles since we have so much <laughs> available to us as creative artists. And I started dancing professionally training a year and a half ago. And in this dream that I had, <clears throat> I was pulling out jewels out of my nose. <laughs> I don't know what it quite meant, but I was pretty amazed that these threaded jewels beaded together kept coming out of my nose. The very next day, I had a breakthrough in my dancing and it was a professional level class and at the end of class usually the ones who do very well in the routine the teacher puts you in front well this was the first time for me in my professional dancing career that I was put at the front and I take that dream the night before as a sign of my breakthrough something beautiful that was supposed to happen to me the next day I woke up from an early evening nap remembering this. A friend had a cat being kept in a small water-filled aquarium because supposedly it only breathed water. It was a reddish cat with some thin black stripes. It was a boy cat with short hair, but it didn't look like it was underwater in any way. It just was. It couldn't move much in a small space, and it disturbed me a lot seeing it in there as if it were trapped in jail. Then my friend and I noticed that, was poke, that it was poking its nose up into the small inch or so of air that was above the top of the water, under the piece of glass that covered the aquarium. But I was afraid it would drown in the air. I didn't understand why it was apparently trying to push itself out of the water. It didn't seem scared. My friend didn't seem scared either. She seemed nonchalant about the whole thing. She let the cat fully emerge from the water, which it was able to do because the glass top had turned into thin fabric. I watched incredulously when it didn't die. It seemed fine. I, I, wa I was already freaking out, worried and shocked. And then I got very angry because the cat was, had been, or somehow had adapted and was now a normal cat. It seemed to me that before it had been tortured for a long time unnecessarily. 
Then somehow we were all in a car going somewhere and there was a largish squat bird, chicken size, sort of reddish too, with a soft clucky neck. And that too had emerged from living in water. The cat and the bird were getting very close to each other, almost touching noses. And there was a dog too, but I couldn't see the dog at all as clearly. I was very stressed because of all that had happened and because it seemed to me that there was a danger of the animals eating or at least harming each other, but they weren't. They just seemed curious. Everyone was calm except me. The whole thing was strange and unbelievable and nerve-wracking. I was glad to wake up and realize it was only a dream. So about six months ago I had this dream. Um, in my dream I suddenly realized I was pregnant and as I made this realization it seemed that my body decided to sort of quickly evolve six months and my stomach grew uh, out very quickly and I was suddenly six months pregnant after making the realization. So I couldn't remember, I couldn't decide in my dream if I was happy or sad about being pregnant. I just was sort of confused. I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. Um, the pregnancy had been an accident. I hadn't planned on getting pregnant. And uh, so I went to tell my boyfriend that I was pregnant, suddenly six months pregnant, and see how he felt about it. And he seemed to feel kind of the same way, not one way or the other. And so I asked him what he thought we should name the baby. And I remember this really vividly. He just sort of looked away and said, in kind of this uh, blasé voice, well, I don't care what you name the baby. And that totally devastated me in my dream. I was really upset that he didn't care or was acting like he didn't care. And so I left <clears throat> and um, I decided I didn't want the baby either and I was going to get an abortion. But I was so embarrassed about not wanting the baby and sort of just finding it to be a total nuisance. I decided I was going to perform the abortion myself. Um, I know in the dream I did give myself the abortion, but I don't remember that part, and I'm, I think I might have sort of just skipped over it in my dream to sort of spare myself um, the disgusting, you know, horrible violence of it. Um, but I do remember suddenly I wasn't pregnant anymore. I had done the abortion. And I looked down at the ground, and instead of it being a aborted human fetus, it was the aborted fetus of a squirrel. And I remember thinking in my dream, I was so relieved because I realized, oh, well, if this is a squirrel fetus, then this isn't my baby, but for some reason I was carrying it in my body. And I was just really, I felt sort of justified in aborting it and, and felt pretty peaceful at the end that I had gotten this thing out of my body that, that wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and so the dream sort of ended almost on like a um, hopeful note, I guess. Um, I had this uh, grieving dream when, um, when my best friend David died, um, where I was in like a town. It was like an old town, although the, the town was kind of it was an old town, but you could tell in the past that it used to be like a wealthy town. And I was with two of my female friends and I was in the dream. I was grieving the fact that my friend David had died. And I 
from the way I was feeling, I was grieving for a few days and we were just walking through this town and we went into a hotel and just wandered through the hotel to the back to where there was a pool. And for some reason, um, I decided that we should skinny dip in the pool. Um, so we just took off our clothes or two, uh, one of the girls took off her clothes and I took off my clothes and we just kind of jumped in the pool. And I was aware that maybe the hotel manager would come out and pluck us out or whatever, but I really didn't care because I was grieving. Um, somewhere after that, as dreams do, I ended up without the other friends and I was in the middle of a field of the same town facing the highway, which is just an old dirt road. Uh, what was really interesting was that uh, the houses had billboards on them and normally you would imagine the billboards facing the road but the billboards were facing away from the road facing into the field and the billboards were empty and they were old and they were um, not used in a very long time and I would wonder why they were facing in and I would think about how it was in the past and um, when the town used to be a rich town and I wondered when the town was alive in the past and but at the same time I was just grieving and I was just grieving and I was just grieving um, so it was like the town used to be alive and the town was no longer alive um, and that was that dream I had a series of dreams a period of my life where I was trying to get up this hill and trying to get up this hill and in one particular dream we were trying to get up this hill but it was as if it was 90 degrees like you it was a hill but it was also like this 90 you you just all of a sudden it was like just vertical and it was really spooky so all these people would try to run up it and gain momentum to get to the top but of course they'd weaken and fall off and so I was studying the road <laughs> and I noticed that there was grass on the side of the road so instead of taking the main road I went to the side of the road and I grabbed on the grass and I pulled myself up the road so I was on the side of the road pulling myself up Anyway, finally, after these series of dreams of climbing steep mountains and being unable to make it or making it or challenges or whatever, I had one dream where I finally made it to the top of this mountain. And I looked down and it was like this little, like I crested the mountain and then there was this like little valley and all these people were like, yo, they were so happy to see me. And they kept saying, we've been waiting for you. So... I was a blonde actor in a field that was in the back of the Algonquin Elementary School. There were many people there in a ring watching some event. They were standing. I was wearing black. I decided to steal my own baby. I got it somehow. I was a very young child with eyes closed in a blanket, very small. I started walking out with it slowly. Some lady mentioned how cute it was. I made it away from the crowd and was walking by the side of my parents' property. I was almost to the place where the car would materialize and a woman caught up with me. I had a knife and pointed it at her throat. I couldn't thrust it through. I was dejected that I could never go through with anything. Okay, so I had this dream once. Only and I liked it because it took place in a wonderful and lovely environment. It actually starts that I'm sitting in a plane. It's a huge airplane and there's even 
there are pool tables in this airplane <laughs> and people are playing pool. It seems more like a bar to me. And I'm having fun in this plane actually. And the plane is landing, people are still playing pool. And I get off the plane and I'm on an island. It's the most gorgeous island I've ever seen as soon as I leave the plane. I'm in the middle of the jungle and there are some waterfalls <laughs> coming down. As far as I remember, I'm with a friend of mine, with a real life friend, actually a person I traveled a lot with. and. I think I, I always feel or think that it's uh, that it's Jamaica. I don't know why, but I always wanted to go to Jamaica and perhaps it is Jamaica. So we start walking and we have this these huge knives um, because there are no real paths and no real ways and we have to fight our way. Through all the uh, the green, yeah, through the jungle, and all of a sudden there's a house. It's a tree house actually, and I always like tree houses. And this one definitely is the most beautiful tree house I've ever seen. And in front of this house, there's an old man sitting and playing the teredo. And sometimes uh, I think I heard um, a little bongo as well. So he's playing Dutteridoo and I don't want to disturb him. I just feel that I should just sit next to him and listen. And that's the moment when I realize that my friend is not there anymore. That I'm alone, just jungle and house and the sound of the music. And he just asks me what kind of candy I want to have. And uh, I go into the house and just see tons of candy. I don't know what they're called, these round things. <laughs> just sweet stuff in there. And I start looking and searching and take the best one I can find and leave the house again, sit next to him. And he just smiles and continues playing the Teredo. And I decide to go on and find my way through. And then I woke up. <laughs> I chase someone or something into a fancy dark wood bar room. I have a heavy old-fashioned rifle. There are two men behind the bar, and one customer has his foot up on the brass rail. Also, there are two children on bar stools. They're Peggy's girls at about seven and eight years of age. Peggy used to work as a waitress in Brannan's, where I worked in the early 80s. The thing I'm chasing tries to hide by pretending to be part of a four-inch thick wooden painted bas-relief of the rape of the Sabines above the fireplace. I swing the rifle like a club at the edge of the painting, chip it, dent it, 
the bar guys continue to work, oblivious to what's going on. I mean, I'm chasing the thing, trying to kill it because it's dangerous. I say to the nearest bar guy, call the cops, you fucking moron. The art falls down, dislodging the creature, which skitters underneath the bar. The bar guy comes out and gets in my way. He's down on his hands and knees trying to help get the thing. I'm going, come on, come on, meaning get out of the way. The bar guy is relaxed. He's not trying very hard. I say snarkily, um, what are you doing? I push him out of the way and swish my gun under the bar to chase the thing out. Now it's a frog-shaped gel pack ice bag. It goes out into the hallway, climbs nine feet up the high wall, and sticks there, tapping its corner, its foot, making a show of waiting for me to catch up. I climb up onto a bookcase and smash the gel pack with the butt of the rifle. The gel pack falls down and climbs onto a low table. I use the side of my rifle to hold it there. Unable to move, the thing heats up, steams up inside. The two little girls come and watch. It's become a foot-long, fish-shaped cooking bag. The bag tears open, and inside is an order of jumbo shrimp and Chinese vegetables, kimchi, asparagus, French-cut green beans. The girls get little chairs for the table and sit down to eat. I let them eat it, but I think this might be a situation like in the poem Take Over From Within, which is about how deer lure hunters to shoot them and take them home to eat so the deer get inside the hunters' families and take over from within. You have been listening to Burncast, a podcast spreading the flames about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. For more information about this or other episodes, please visit our website, www.burncast.net. Special thanks to Lecter of NoSpectators.com for hosting these podcasts.